The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. This then is our duty, not only to confess our God in time of peace and quietness, but that we avow Him when in the midst of His and our enemies. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. This sermon today is on Isaiah 26, 13 through 16, and it comes to us from John Knox. It was delivered on the 19th of August, 1565. Joel, we've we've done this before on the on the show where we've said that there are are certain people in history who they you can't cover their lives in just a few minutes. And some episodes, five or ten minutes is perfect to really give you a good snapshot of who they were, especially with what we know about them. John Knox is not one of those people where five or ten minutes is even enough to, to just kind of dip your feet in the water. And we're going to just kind of give you a quick overview, almost flyover of who he was because if we were to try to get into the weeds and start to explain this guy we would either say something in a way that it just wouldn't be fully correct and we wouldn't do you justice or we would have to start explaining one thing after another thing and before you know it we were just really tangled up here this sermon we're doing is actually going to be in some ways a part one episode where you're hearing one sermon by john knox and we have a part two, the next sermon, which connects right now with it, Isaiah 26, uh, 17 through 21, that will be coming out later. And we actually have an expert on John Knox, someone who has written books on John Knox, who is going to help us unravel this person a bit because he lived an extremely complicated life. Yeah, so th- this sermon was preached in a series, and uh, we're going to listen to the first part of that series today. And then in the future, down the road, we're going to have an episode that covers uh, the the second part of the sermon, which was historically preached after this one was. But Joel, we do know that this sermon was preached on the 19th of August, 1565. And the reason we know this is because this sermon got John Knox in some trouble. He had planned to deliver an exegesis on Isaiah 26, 13 through 16, and he was just going to do a quick thing, but he started to go over the a lot of time. And Jill, you remember when we were in Bible college, or maybe you remember from church where a pastor starts going and they just kind of keep going and keep going and they start to go all into these new places. And that's kind of what happened to John Knox, which wouldn't have been a big deal, except the King of Scotland was in attendance that day. And when he gets home, he is furious. He won't eat food. He is in a bad mood because he is convinced that the reason that John Knox went over and that he kept talking about the different things he was talking about was because that John Knox was specifically trying to get at the King of Scotland. Yeah, Troy, John Knox's early life is something that is is, is a little bit of a mystery. Uh, his birth date was debated a little bit. It was thought to be 1505 until the early 1900s, around 1904. Uh, some people thought that it, it actually probably more so was between 1513 and 1515. So it's still it's still debated today. But it is thought that he excelled in school and, and did very well. He preferred reading old books from the early church. And it's, it's around 1546 that we see him kind of spring onto the scene. And he is taught by different teachers about the new Protestant movement. 
at some point he he goes to Germany and Switzerland to being taught some of the Protestant Reformation that's occurring around him, and he starts to formulate his beliefs, starts to become passionate and a real believer in the Reformation. He he brings these back with him to Scotland. And he's eventually given a church. And he wasn't actually really looking to have a church. He was kind of more of a theologian, wanted to write books. But they said, no, you need to be a part of this church. And he preaches at this church, and it lasts about a year. And then this church, which is apparently kind of this whole town, actually, is is because they're going a different Protestant direction than the King of Scotland wants, he basically says, hey, France, can you take care of this town for me? France sends an army over, captures them. And keeps John Knox on a boat for basically two years. These people were forced onto a boat at the request of a of a woman named Mary, who is running the region. and And Mary is going to be a confusing name in this story because John Knox gets in a fight with three different Marys, all of which are ruling different lands. So this is a different one than the others. It's a popular name back then. It was a popular name back then, and he didn't like any of them apparently. Um, so he gets in a fight with her. And while on the, well, he ends up on this boat, and the Scottish people are asked to do things that are just not okay. They they are told they have to kiss the Virgin Mary, and they're and they're made fun of for not being Catholic, and they're really treated very poorly. And partially because of all this, John Knox gets very sick, and everyone is worried he's going to die. Knox eventually gets off the ship and goes to England this time. Uh, there he gets his own church and is in exile from Scotland during that time. He was doing well at his parish there, but then the king of England, King Edward, died, and Queen Mary, another Mary, Queen Mary of Tudor, took his place, and uh, if you remember from our episode on John Bradford, Queen Mary uh, really, really despised the Protestant Reformation. So whereas John Bradford was sent to jail, and he, he has a great sermon that was done earlier, uh, John Knox ends up leaving England. He goes to Geneva, and this is where he starts to meet another very important person from another earlier episode, John Calvin. And John Calvin and John Knox, they get along pretty well. In fact, John Calvin at two different times tries to help John Knox, you know, get a new church, kind of get him another job, get him back and going. So they're doing really well. Eventually, he decides to leave Geneva, head back to Scotland. But before he does, uh, he writes a very scathing pamphlet, just really ripping into Queen Mary of Tudor because he did not like her and they did not get along well. And um, it's important to note, I know this is a lot of history back and forth. He multiple times would go to England, Geneva, Germany. We're leaving lots of parts of the story out, just giving you this broad overview. He went all around these different places multiple times and he got in fights, tons of politics. Again, his life was pretty complicated. When he got behind a pulpit, though, he was on fire for, for Christ. He, he preached the gospel. He preached the Bible. Um, and especially there in Scotland, and he, he is a, a good reason. We can point to him and say that that's a big part of the reason why the Protestant Reformation t- took hold there in Scotland. And part of the reason that these people were being offended was because the things he was saying were, you know, were bothering them. He was calling out the people around him and how they were living. So when he dies, some Scottish nobility will come to visit him at his funeral. But no one from the courts, none of the kings, none of the princes really did, even though they would sit in attendance at his sermon sometimes. It was said he passed on without anyone important really taking note. But the problem wasn't really with John Knox's influence as a person, but the ideas that he was pushing into Scotland. The Reformation took hold because of what he was saying, what he was preaching in the books that he was writing, and this thing would affect people for a long time to come. The English Puritans drew a lot of their influence because of John Knox, and 
it was also, he was seen as one of the big reasons why the Church of England didn't take over Scotland, why it ended up going in a new direction. And it took a long time for that new direction to take on a name, but eventually he would be kind of considered the founding father of Presbyterianism, even though it would be, you know, 120 years before that would actually start to become official. One of the things I like about this sermon is I like seeing his heart for Scotland and specifically Edinburgh. Uh, you can tell he you can tell he loves his homeland on it. There's there's a portion where um, he's he's calling essentially on Scotland to to repent to get their act straight before God. Com- he compares them to the children of Israel and how over generations the children of Israel lost sight of uh, what God had called them to and lost an appreciation for what God has done for them. And th- this sermon is is an exegesis it's kind of a breakdown of scripture he's going to talk through different passages uh based around isaiah 26 where isaiah prophesies and and talks through the destruction of of jerusalem talks through how god would protect his people talks through the promises and the things that god promises in advance and how he follows through with them and how much better the world is if we truly believe the promises that god has promised to his people. He, he spends a lot of time talking about Daniel. And again, it, this is a, a pretty straightforward exegesis. And it, it is a preaching style that by today's standards does seem kind of kind of drawn out, kind of stretched out, talking through all of these passages and scriptures. But I really appreciated the, the kind of the time that he takes uh, setting up these, these figures throughout the Bible and showing time and time again how God preserves his promises, how God has brought him through and delivered them, and that God is faithful to his people no matter what. Isaiah 26, 13 through 16. O Lord, our God, other lords beside you have had dominion over us, but by you only will we make mention of your name. They are dead, they will not live. They are deceased, they will not rise. You have visited and destroyed them and made all, and made all their memory to perish. You've increased the nation, O Lord. You've increased the nation, you are glorified. You've removed it far into the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble have they visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As the skillful captain has his ship tossed with a terrible tempest and strong winds, is compelled to go along with it so that either by too much resisting of the violence of the waves his vessel might be overwhelmed, or by too much liberty granted might be carried wherever the fury of the storm would take it, so that his ship should crash upon the shore and they shipwreck. Even so does the prophet Isaiah guide us in this text, for he, foreseeing the great desolation that was decreed in the council of the Eternal against Jerusalem and Judah, that the whole people that bear the name of God should be dispersed, that the holy city should be destroyed, the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, and where God had promised to give his own presence, should be burned with fire, and the king taken, his sons in his own presence murdered, his own eyes immediately after would be put out, the nobility, some cruelly murdered, some shamefully led away captives, and finally the whole seed of Abraham raised, as it were, from the fate of the earth. 
The prophet, I say, fearing these horrible calamities, does, as it were, sometimes suffer himself and the people committed to his charge to be carried away with the violence of the tempest without further resistance than by pouring out his and their mournful complaints before the majesty of God. At other times, he valiantly resists the desperate tempest and pronounces the fearful destruction of all who trouble the church of God, which he pronounces that God will multiply even when the church appears utterly to be exterminated. But because there is no final rest to the whole body until the head returns for judgment, he exhorts the afflicted to patience and promises a visitation where the wickedness of the wicked will be revealed and finally repaid. These are the chief points of which, by the grace of God, we intend more largely at this present to speak. First, the prophet says, O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled us. He complains of the unjust tyranny that the poor afflicted Israelites sustained during the time of their captivity. The prophet was gathered to his fathers in peace before this came upon the people. For a hundred years after his death, the people were not led away captive, but he knew of the calamity that was coming, and he predicted the complaint they would make. To better understand this complaint and the mind of the prophet, we must first observe from where all authority flows, and secondly, to what end powers are appointed by God. The first is resolved to us by the words of the apostle saying, There is no power but of God. David brings in the eternal God speaking to judges and rulers saying, I have said you are gods and sons of the Most High from which place it is evident that it is neither birth, affluence of stars, influence of stars, election of people, force of arms, or whatever can be comprehended under the power of nature that makes the distinction between the superior power and the inferior, or that establishes the royal throne of kings. But it is the only and perfect ordinance of God who wills his terror, power, and majesty partially to shine in the thrones of kings and in the faces of judges, and this for the profit and comfort of men, so that whomever would study to deface the order of government that God has established does nothing but avert and turn upside down the very throne of God, which he wills to be fixed here upon earth. The end and cause, then, why God imprints in the weak and feeble flesh of man his image of his own power and majesty is not to puff up flesh in opinion of itself, but that he should consider he is appointed lieutenant to one whose eyes continually watch upon him to see and examine how he behaves himself in his office. St. Paul, in few words, declares the purpose of the sword is committed to the powers, saying, it is to the punishment of the wicked doers and for the praise of those who do well. The same is repeated to Joshua in his inauguration to the government of the people by God himself saying, Let not the book of this law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, that you may keep it and do according to all that which is written in it. For then will your way be prosperous and you will be prudent. The first thing that God requires of him who is called to the honor of a king is the knowledge of his will revealed in his word. The second is an upright and willing mind to do the things as God commands in his law without drifting to the right or to the left. Kings then do not have an absolute power to do in their government what pleases them, but their power is limited by God's word 
so that if they strike where God has not commanded, they are but murderers. And if they spare where God has commanded to strike, they and their throne are criminal and guilty of the wickedness which abounds upon the face of the earth for lack of punishment. After the first part of this mournful complaint, the prophet declares the will of the people, saying, Nevertheless, we will remember you only in your name. The mind of the prophet is plain, namely, that in the long-sustained affliction, the people of God did not worship a false and vain religion, but remembered God, who sometimes appeared to them in his merciful presence, which although they did not see it then, yet they would still remember his name. That is, they would call to mind the doctrine and promise which formerly they heard, although in their prosperity they did not sufficiently glorify God, who so mercifully ruled in the midst of them. The temptation, no doubt, of the Israelites was great in those days. They were carried captives from the land of Canaan, which was to them the pledge of God's favor towards them, for it was the inheritance that God promised Abraham and to his seed forever. The league and covenant of God's protection appeared to have been broken. They lamentably complained that they did not see their accustomed signs of God's merciful presence. The true prophets were few, and the abominations used in Babylon were exceedingly many. And so it might have appeared to them that it was in vain that they were called to the descendants of Abraham. How notable then is this their confession that in bondage they make that they will remember God only. Although he has appeared to turn his face from them, they will remember his name and will call to mind the deliverance promised. Here we have to consider what is our duty. If God brings us to a similar extreme and for our offenses and unthankfulness, he justly could. This confession is not the fair, flattering words of hypocrites, lying and bathing in their pleasures, but it is the mighty operation of the Spirit of God, who does not leave his own destitute of some comfort in their most desperate calamities. This, then, is our duty, not only to confess our God in time of peace and quietness, but he chiefly craves that we avow him when in the midst of his and our enemies. And this is not in us to do, but it necessitates that the Spirit of God work in us. These people who dealt with this were the only people upon the face of the earth to whom God was rightly known. Among them were his laws, statutes, ordinances, and sacrifices used and put into practice. They only invoked his name, and to them alone had he promised his protection and assistance. What then should be the cause that he should give them over to this great reproach and bring them into such extremity that his own name in them should be blasphemed? The prophet Ezekiel who saw this horrible destruction prophesied by Isaiah, put into just execution, gives an answer in these words. I gave them laws that were good, in which whomever should walk in them should live in them. But they would not walk in my ways, but rebelled against me. And so I have given to them laws that are not good and judgments in which they will not live. The writer's of the books of Kings and Chronicles declare this in more plain words, saying, The Lord sent to them his prophets, rising early, desiring them to return to the Lord and to amend their wicked ways, for he would have spared his people and his tabernacle. But they mocked his servants and would not return to the Lord their God to walk in his ways. Second Kings 27. Here it is evident that their disobedience to God and to the voices of his prophets was the cause of their destruction. So it is that God, by that great pastor, our Lord Jesus, now 
manifestly in his word calls us from all impiety as well of body as of mind to holiness of life and to his spiritual service. And for this purpose, he has erected the throne of his mercy among us, the true preaching of his word together with the right administration of his sacraments. But what our obedience is, let every man examine his own conscience and consider what statutes and laws would have to be given to us. Would you, O Scotland, have a king to reign over you in justice, equity, and mercy? Subject yourselves to the Lord your God, obey his commandments, and magnify the word that calls to you. This is the way. Walk in it, says Isaiah 30. And if you will not, don't flatter yourself. The same justice remains this day in God to punish you. Scotland and you, Edinburgh especially, which before punished the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. But now let us hear what the prophet says further. The dead will not live, says he, neither will the tyrants nor the dead arise, because you have visited and scattered them and destroyed all their memory. From this 14th verse to the end of the 19th, it appears that the prophet observes in no particular order. He seems to speak things that directly contradict one another. For first he says, the dead will not live. Afterwards, he affirms, your dead men will live. Secondly, he says, you have visited and scattered them and destroyed all their memory. Immediately after, he says, you have increased your nation. O Lord, you have increased your nation. They have visited you and have poured out a prayer before you. Who would not think that these are things not only spoken without good order and purpose, but also manifestly contradicting one another? For to live and not to live, to be so destroyed that no memorial remains, and to be so increased that the coasts of the earth will be replenished seem to import plain contradiction. To remove this doubt, we must observe that the prophet had to do with different kinds of men. He had to do with the manifest enemies of God's people, the Chaldeans or Babylonians. He had to deal with the seed of Abraham, and there were three sorts. The ten tribes were all degenerated from the true worship of God and corrupted with idolatry. There rested only the tribe of Judah at Jerusalem, where the form of true worship, true religion, was observed, the law taught, and the ordinance of God outwardly kept. But yet there were in that body, I mean in the body of the visible church, a great number that were hypocrites, as this day yet are among us that profess the Lord Jesus and have refused papistry. Also not a few that live licentious lives, some that turned their back to God, that is, had forsaken all true religion, and some that lived a most abominable life, as Ezekiel says in his vision, and yet there were some godly as a few wheat corns oppressed and hid among the multitude of chaff. So, according to this diversity, the prophet kept different purposes, and yet in perfect order. And after the first part of the complaint of the afflicted, as we have heard, he bursts out against all the proud enemies of God's people, against all who trouble them, and against all who mock and forsake God and say, the dead will not live, the proud giants will not rise, you have scattered them and destroyed their memorial. In which words he contends against the present temptation and the woeful state of God's people and against the insolent pride of those who oppress them as of the prophet should, as if the prophet should say, O you troublers of God's people, 
However it appears to you in this your bloody rage that God does not regard your cruelty nor considers what violence you do to his poor afflicted, yet he will visit you, and your bodies will fall and lie as stinking carrion among the face of the earth. You will fall without hope of life or of a blessed resurrection, and even if you gather your strength and augment your families, you will be so scattered that you will leave no memory of you to the posterities to come but that which will be odious. Here the tyrants have their abomination or their admonition and the afflicted church immeasurable comfort. The tyrants that oppress will receive the same end which they did to those who have passed before. That is, they will die and fall with shame without hope of resurrection as is prophesied. Therefore, in these apparent calamities, let us not be discouraged, but with unfeigned repentance, let us return to the Lord our God. Let us accuse and condemn our former negligence and steadfastly depend upon his promised deliverance. So will our temporary sorrows be converted into everlasting joy. The doubt that might be moved concerning the destruction of those whom God exalts will be discussed, if time will allow, after we have passed through the text. The prophet now proceeds and says, You have increased the nations, O Lord. You have increased the nations. You are made glorious. You have enlarged all the coasts of the earth. In these words, the prophet gives consolation to the afflicted, assuring them that no matter how horrible the desolation will be, the seed of Abraham will be multiplied, that it should replenish the coasts of the earth, and that God should be glorified in their affliction even more than he was during the time of their prosperity. This promise, no doubt, was incredible when it was made, for who could have been persuaded that the destruction of Jerusalem should have been the means where the nation of the, of the Jews should have been increased, seeing that much rather it appeared that the overthrow of Jerusalem should have been the very abolishing of the seed of Abraham. But we must consider to what end it was that God revealed himself to Abraham and what is contained in the promise of the multiplication of the seed. First, God revealed himself to Abraham to let all flesh understand by the means of his word that God first called man and revealed himself to him, that flesh can do nothing but rebel against God. For Abraham, no doubt, was an idolater before God called him from Ur of the Chaldees. The promise was made that the seed of Abraham should be multiplied as the seeds of heaven and as the sand of the sea, which is not simply to be understood of his natural seed, although it was greatly increased, but rather of the spiritual seed of Abraham, as the apostle speaks. Now, if we are able to prove that the right knowledge of God, his wisdom, justice, mercy, and power were more amply declared in their captivity than at any time before, then we cannot deny that God, even when to man's judgment, he had utterly raised them for the face of the earth, did increase the nation of the Jews so that he was glorified in them and extended the coasts of the earth for their habitation. And for the better understanding, let us shortly try the histories from their captivity to their deliverance and after the same to the coming of the Messiah. No doubt Satan intended by the dispersion of the Jews to have profaned the whole seed of Abraham, but among them there should not have remained the true knowledge of God or the spirit of sanctification, but that all should have come to be contemptuous towards God. For what purpose was it that Daniel and his fellows were taken into the king's court and were commanded to be fed at the king's table and were put to the schools of their diviners, soothsayers, and astrologers? 
It may be thought that it proceeded of the king's humanity and of a zeal which he had that they should be brought up in virtue and good learning. And I don't doubt that it was seen as so by a great number of the Jews. But the secret practice of the devil was understood by Daniel when he refused to defile himself with the king's meat, which was forbidden to the seed of Abraham and the law of their God. Well, God began shortly after to show himself mindful of his promise made by his prophet and to trouble Nebuchadnezzar himself by showing him a vision in his dream which troubled him because he could not forget the terror of it, but he also could not remember what the vision and the parts of it were. Yet when he called all the diviners, interpreters of dreams, and soothsayers and demanded that they explain the dream, but while they answered, that such a question had never been demanded of any soothsayer or magician, the charge was given that they all should be slain. And among the rest, Daniel, whose innocence the devil envied, was sought to have suffered the same judgment. He asked for time to disclose that secret. I only touch the history to let you see by what means God increased his knowledge, which being granted, the vision was revealed to him. He showed the same to the king with a true interpretation of it, adding that the knowledge of it came not from the stars, but only from the God of Abraham, who alone was and is the true God. Which being understood, the king burst out in his confession, saying, Of a truth your God is the most excellent of all gods, and he is Lord of kings, and he only reveals secrets, seeing that you could open this mystery. And when Nebuchadnezzar, after that, being puffed up with pride by the counsel of his wicked nobility, would make an image before which he would have all tongues and nations subject to him and make adoration, and when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not obey his unjust commandment and so were cast into the flaming furnace of fire, and yet by God's angels were so preserved that no smell of fire remained on them or their garments, this same king gave a more notable confession, saying, the Lord God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is to be praised, who has sent his angels and delivered his worshipers that put trust in him, who have worked against the king's commandment, who have rather given their own bodies to torment than that they would worship another god except their own god. So by me I decree that whoever will blaspheme the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he will be cut to pieces and his house will be made detestable. Here we see God began even almost at the beginning of their captivity to notify his name, to multiply his knowledge and set out as well his power as his wisdom by those that are taken prisoners, even while they were despised, so that the name and fear of the God of Abraham was never before glorified to so many realms and nations. This wondrous work of God proceeded from one empire to another, for Daniel, being promoted to great honor by Darius, king of the Persians and Medes, fell into a desperate danger, for he was committed to prison among lions because he was found breaking the king's injunction. Not that the king desired the destruction of God's servants, but because the corrupt idolaters who, in hatred of Daniel, had created a law to be made and urged the king against his nature— but God, by his angels, stopped the lion's mouths, and so preserved his servant, which being considered with the sudden destruction of Daniel's enemies by the same lions, King Darius wrote to all people, tongues, and nations, It is decreed by me that in all the dominions of my kingdom men will fear and revere the God of Daniel, because he is the living God, abiding forever, whose kingdom will not be destroyed, who saved and delivers, who has delivered Daniel from the lions. Oh. 
two takeaways that I think are just something that I noticed. The first one is he starts the sermon off with talking about a tempest, talking about a captain on a boat. And it's easy to kind of miss that part where he's just saying, yeah, you know, a a boat just kind of goes wherever. And if you fight the waves too hard, you'll sink. And if you go with the waves too much, you'll just float out to who knows where. But you got to remember, this is being preached by a guy who spent almost two years against his will prisoner on a boat. He knows a lot about that. Like he's talking from a very personal experience. It's easy to just kind of overlook that as, oh, it's a nice metaphor. But think about like what that means to him, what that part of, I mean, imagine two years on a boat against your will and how that would have felt. He was very familiar with that feeling of just kind of going wherever the boat had to go. The other thing that stood out to me about this whole sermon, we talked about in the very beginning how this sermon offended the king of Scotland and he ran off and and John Knox ends up called before this council and they tell him, you know, you better start preaching. And John Knox pretty much goes like, I'll do whatever the church wants me to do. I'll submit to authority, but I didn't, I don't feel like I did anything wrong and I'm not going to apologize for it. But if you look at this sermon and the way he talks about kings and the way he talks about leaders, it's just really crazy to me because I don't know how many of us if the president of the United States or whatever leader of our country or someone very important came in the middle of us preaching or in the middle of us talking about God or sharing that with a friend, how many of us would just talk so boldly? Yet he is sitting there just ripping bad kings left and right. He is talking about persecution. It's really incredible. And then I remind myself, he really experienced a lot of persecution. He's talking about a very personal subject and he doesn't hold back and he really doesn't care who's in the audience. I think that's and it's just a cool thing. And I think that's probably part of the reason why John Knox matters so much today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Douglas Bond. Douglas Bond is a successful author who's written many books about great men of God. Uh, if you want to know more about John Knox, he has a book on John Knox called The Mighty Weakness of John Knox. The link is in the show notes if you want to go to his website. Also on our website, you can find a transcript for today's episode and all of our episodes here at Revive Thoughts. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share us, tell other people what we are doing at Revive Thoughts, how we are doing our best to bring old sermons back to life and put them into audio in your ears for the first time. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.